Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast show, a podcast that helps foster respect through inclusion, service, and equity. This is episode four with Bay Street Capital Holdings. This is Ekana Anyagafu. I'm the director of planning at Bay Street Capital. My primary focus is making sure that our clients have a sound financial plan and that they're really doing the things that are going to put them in a better position later in life. On top of that, I also lead our seminars efforts and our financial literacy with Bay Street. And I do a lot of the workshops that we do with individuals and charities, kind of all of them. Hey, everyone. I'm William Houston. I'm the founder of Bay Street Capital. We are a registered investment advisor based in Palo Alto. Just as Ekana touched on, we work with institutional plans and families that are looking to invest their money for the future. We focus on renewable energy and technology. Great to be here. Thank you both for joining us. And I'm Stacey Hegarty. I am the Global Director of Equity and Inclusion for IPX and Envision Rise. So I'm very excited to be bringing you both onto the podcast. We had some good conversations several weeks ago, and I love your message. I love what your organization is doing. So tell me more about Bay Street Capital. Tell me, how did you come to exist? What is your big focus? And what are you hoping that all of our listeners will take away? Well, I think you're probably the first one that I'll have talk about this since this is your baby. Go ahead. Give us some insights onto Bay Street Capital Holdings. Sure. Thank you. So I started Bay Street to advocate for diverse and emerging fund managers and entrepreneurs. So in the institutional space, typically what you find is that there are a lot of diverse managers, people of color, women that are outperforming their peer group but they don't have an advocate for them that's recommending that plan sponsors, plan sponsor being a 401k or a foundation or an endowment. They don't have advisor to that organization recommending them to participate in the fund. I started it because I supported the TSP, the Thrift Savings Plan. It's a $550 billion, now $650 billion endowment. This was several years ago when I was doing it for them. $650 billion, and there's no people of color, no women that receive any compensation to support that plan. So it was shocking to me to know that, you know, America's largest retirement plan was only compensating white males from an equity standpoint and from a compensation standpoint to administer their plan. And when I was figuring out, well, how could it get like that? The solution that I came to was there were no consultants that were recommending anything different. You follow? And so it wasn't as if they had a better price or that they had economy of scale. This was purely just based on what was recommended to them and the relationship that was there, keeping that as it has been since the beginning of time. So, Ekana, what drew you to Bay Street Capital? Yeah, great question. Thanks again for having us. I think for myself, when I started my career, I was at Charles Schwab and was really able to work my way up there as a financial consultant. Then I went to TD Ameritrade. What I realized is as I received more designations or as I saw more and more success, the amount of money that people had to have to be able to work with me really started to also increase. And being in Palo Alto, there's many families that are very one of the more expensive areas in the country. What I realized is that my practice and the people I was working with on a day-to-day really didn't look like myself. There's a lot of reasons, I think, for that. But one of the bigger reasons is, quite frankly, the minimums were taking away 
clients that I would even want to work with. And so when I met Will, he was telling me, hey, you know, we're 100% minority owned. He was on the up and up, uh, great performance, things like that. And on top of that, I could set the minimums of who I could work with uh, and essentially have eliminated a lot of those. So because of that, I said, hey, I would like to be able to work with people that look like myself in a literal sense with him, you know, talk every day as we're on the same team, but then also as clients. And that's really what drew me to pastry, being able to give back to the community that I think I should try to give back to. So tell me, what is it like to work with Bay Street Capital? Let's say I am the 401k person at my organization. What would it look like from start to finish? Our first conversation would look like what? What kind of information would you want from me in order to figure out how you can best support our efforts at company XYZ and work together towards some common financial goals? So most of the time when we engage with a organization, the first thing is just ironing out the service agreement. You know, so we're looking at their plan, typically starting with the 5500 to see what they actually filed. And from there, we're doing a comprehensive plan review. When we put that plan review in place at new client orientation, the next thing that we're doing is putting a performance benchmark in place. And in the 401k space, the plan sponsor is really looking to say, how can we use this plan to attract and retain talent? You know, so from a participant's outcome standpoint, we want to say how many participants are using the plan right now and how can we increase that participation rate? We can increase the participation rate if we can show, you know, that the plan is providing better outcomes for those that are already participating in the plan. The next thing that we do from a fiduciary standpoint is put something in place called an investment policy statement. And what that does is it outlines what we're going to invest in, how we're going to approach manager search, how we're going to put a manager on watch list, how we're going to replace a manager if they're underperforming. All those things will be outlined so that there's no sort of emotion involved when you're looking at outcomes and there's no sort of intuition. It's all based on data-driven decision-making that's put in place on the front end of putting the new plan in place. After you've put the investment policy statement in place, You can follow that IPS to select the investments that's going to go into the 401k. So that's called the fund lineup. And then from there, we provide ongoing support. That's where Econet comes in. So we provide quarterly workshops for the participants so that they actually know how to use their plan. It's amazing how much effort goes into designing a 401k. And then often when you trickle down and you actually speak to the employees, a lot of them have no idea how to go about using the plan. And so we've kind of taken a proactive step. You know, for example, for new hires, we have an enrollment meeting for first time graduates that are getting their first job or they're receiving RSUs and things like this. You know, having workshops in place to make sure they understand how to best utilize the plan that's been put in place for them. And at the end of every year, we do have a plan review. So that's kind of a year in the life with Bay Street in terms of the client experience and the journey that they're going through when they engage with us. So you mentioned the workshops, and this was something that we talked about when we first met. And I love this idea. Ekana, can you talk a little bit about what these workshops are like? I know there's one in particular that you do in addition to all the others that is finances for women. And why did you decide to specifically focus on women? And what are some of the other workshops like for participants? Yeah, great question. And essentially, the way we look at it is the women and investing. It's actually our more popular workshop is what we've noticed. 
And the reason why we started to do that is we realized that although from a financial planning sense, there's a lot of generalizations, right? Hey, in general, this is what your situation should be. But what we noticed very quickly is that every person, whether you're a woman, man, person of color, you may have some things that you experience that are just a little different. And with women specifically, when you look at the statistics around who's investing or who's making decision-making or who ends up becoming kind of a caregiver at some point in their life, those things are not necessarily specific to men, but we're with women. And so we really wanted to create something that someone could latch on to and say, okay, I've never heard of this. And we wanted to give something that's unique. And so because of that, we did roll out a variety of different workshops, some for people of color, kind of everything you can think of, we have in some sense or another. And so really been able to address primary concerns of, I've never invested before, you know, my dad did it or my husband does it. But at some point, you know, statistically, once again, women live longer than men. So they will have to be the primary decision maker if they're not already. And so we really head first and said, okay, what can we give that once again is unique? And that's going to be different in the fact that no one else is really talking about specifically, hey, what can you do different, you know, with your longer life projection and just things that are going to come up along that. So. That's what we're doing on the women investing. We do have a variety of other ones. As Will says, we're doing these meetings quarterly for every company. So definitely have to keep the content up to make sure we're staying on top of things. This is fascinating. I remember my first real job after grad school and they put the 401k information in front of me and I have no idea. Don't put that information in front of an anthropologist. We never took those classes. We don't know. And it would have been tremendously helpful for me at that point in my life to have somebody explain even the basics to me. I was well into my career before somebody actually explained that to me. And that didn't come from the plan provider. That came from my dad. <laughs> We're grateful for dads who can do that. You mentioned a workshop for people of color. Can you talk a little bit about why people of color may have different needs in their investing plans? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from, once again, the educational background for myself. And it's funny, you mentioned, hey, you know, you're an anthropology major. I myself double major in finance and economics, along with behavioral science. But I say all that to say is when I did take my first job at Charles Schwab, I actually had the same experience. I saw the 401k options and I was like, I don't know what this is. This is just not what we talked about in class. And so I think the realization that unless someone's from your family at a young age uh, and the average person, I think, just starts to pick up their spending and financial awareness around seven. If someone's not talking to you about it, it's just something that's not covered. And so with people of color in that workshop, we realized that the education level or kind of that base knowledge is not the same as someone who may look like yourself, Stacey. Mm -hmm. So because of that, it's a little bit more rudimentary of like, hey, here's what a stock is, really making sure that people are caught up to even the basis. It's interesting. Uh, 2020, we actually saw the most amount of people of color investing. For the first time, African-Americans as a race crossed over the 50% threshold. It was closer to 33% historically. And so that means that one out of three Black people have, you know, were investing. Now one out of two are investing. 
still not necessarily caught up to our white counterparts where it's 70%, but we're seeing that the knowledge and the interest is starting to increase. And so with that, we are trying to provide these helpful tools and seminars to say, hey, although you may not be all the way understanding what you're seeing, let's give you a base to get there. That's a fascinating statistic. Is there any insight into what drove that number up? That's a considerable increase. And it's, you know, like you said, it's not quite where the white counterparts are, but that's a big jump, especially in a year that was extra special in 2020. Any insights onto the drivers that are helping the Black community invest more? My guess is time. People were at home, quite frankly. And when you're at home, I think the number one hobby in 2020 was baking bread and making bread, right? And so when you have more time, generally you're going to fill that with something. And I think that luckily people started to really look in, well, what's investing? You hear stories about, you know, hey, these things are going up exponentially. Uh, If you look at 2020 as a whole, from March, obviously things went down, but the rest of the year was fairly positive. We saw some really booming months, and I think people wanted to get a hold of that. Um, And people are talking about it more. Not enough, but talking Mm -hmm. about it. That's my opinion. Will, do you have a guess there? Well, I can answer it from a different angle. You know, systematically, the reason why people of color, not just Black people, but just People who aren't white male uh, weren't participate. white male or Asian, that weren't participating in 401ks is because their incomes are lower, right? Mm-hmm. So the 401k, in terms of how it's set up, is meant to be a tax-deferred vehicle. Well, the only person who's going to tax-defer their income is someone who has a higher salary, right? And so the reason why in real life, a lot of people of color aren't contributing or participating in these plans is because they need the income they're receiving on mm-hmm. a basis. And, you know, you see a lot in the DEI space when someone says, if you really care about the people of color in your workplace, tell them what your salary is for the work that you're doing alongside of them. I think especially for women that are systematically being paid less for the same roles as their male counterpart, as well as people of color that are taking jobs that are systematically compensated less, it is more difficult to save a large amount of money in a 401k. And then when you are saving, you're not taking near the amount of risk because you don't have near the amount of cushion to deal with a volatile market where there is risk of loss, you see. And without the education behind that, you know, you end up in a situation where you emotionally feel bad when you're losing money. You have something called snake bite syndrome, where once you lose money, you never invest again because you remember that one time you got burned by that one bad decision you made. I think that's the experience that you will come across with a lot of people. They either didn't have the income or they tried something once and it didn't work out. and They stepped away from it and said, that's not for me. I'm glad you mentioned the emotion that's attached to money. For me, emotion is extremely attached to money. How do you advise people to try very hard to separate those two things? And how can we better manage our emotions around our financial situations? Behavioral finance is one of my favorite topics. It's the only time that we as people make decisions that we know aren't in our best interest. You've heard over and over, if the stock market comes down, don't sell your stocks, buy stocks. And yet behaviorally, when the stock market comes down and you feel bad and you've lost money, what most people will do is sell their stocks and take and realize the loss. 
And so, you know, part of being a good advisor is guiding that behavioral process and encouraging the people that are depending on you as the advisor to say, look, this isn't something that you need to worry about. You know, managing money is our full-time job. And if someone else has a full-time job, I always tell them, don't take on two full-time jobs. Focus and excel on what you do best and grow in your career, focus on your career, and then allow someone whose full-time job is to manage your money without having the emotional attachment to a positive or a negative day. You know, for me, when the market is up or down and I'm making decisions for clients, it feels a lot different for me because it's data-driven decision and it's something I'm doing for an aggregate group of people as opposed to this is what has happened with myself. And that's also why a lot of firms require advisors to invest their money in the same portfolio that they're managing for their clients because it gets rid of this conflict of interest. If my money is not invested the same as yours is, you would argue, well, why not? You're the expert. You Mm -hmm. see, same thought process. That's very interesting. Thank you for that. One more question I have. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've talked about that a little bit. A lot of organizations really just are very internal facing when they're talking DEI efforts. And when I'm talking with clients, something that I do encourage them to look at is their suppliers and vendors. How diverse are your suppliers and vendors? And I think this is a place that Bay Street Capital can really work well. Do you find that there are organizations that are looking at their suppliers and vendors for diversity? Or is that a space that still hasn't really been broken into yet? Yeah. So on the public side for public plans, there's a lot of momentum and there's a lot of positive outcomes. A lot of the CIOs for large state plans, you know, they have mandates in place where they're looking to increase diversity amongst their suppliers. And since it's a public entity, when they do the RFP, it's shared publicly. So it's easy to kind of determine who's looking for what we have to provide. It's actually more difficult in the private space. So if you have a private foundation or you have a a nonprofit that does an RFP, it doesn't have to be public. So it can literally be a board of individuals and they will say, hey, we should look for another investment advisor. And that process doesn't have to be public. It's not public. However, they source the people that interview for that opportunity and the fund managers that are selected is not in a very transparent manner. So there is some work to be done in the private space in terms of putting together resources for boards to be able to determine how can we find the diverse and emerging managers, because there's no sort of database that they can just pull up. It's not like Google where you could just say, hey, let me find out how I can address this. And most boards and foundations I would say a lot of times the excuse is, why do we need to have diversity amongst fund managers if we have diversity in other areas of our, like behaviorally, it's a very odd outcome because data shows that diverse investment teams perform as good or better as their counterparts. So to say, well, why do we need to have 10% or 15%? Why can't we just leave it the way that it is? Is counterintuitive to what you know to be leading to better outcomes you follow. Thank you for that. Well, we are coming up on the end of our time together, but I do want to give you each an opportunity to share anything you feel like we haven't had a chance to discuss or talk about any products that you think would be really essential for a lot of businesses or even individuals right now. Ekana, I'll let you go first. Okay. Thank you for that as well. 
for me, I think that, you know, Will just touched on it and you yourself, you know, you're asking about the supply diversity. And I think that a lot of firms, especially since June of last year, really are trying. I do want to put that out there. But I do find that oftentimes the DEI kind of stops at what's the demographic of the company? What does the C-suite look like? You know, some people take that additional step to say, okay, what does the culture feel like for the minority, whether that's someone that's a person of color or a different sexual orientation? Um, I think that when you then start to look and say, all right, where are we doing things from a supply? It just is that most people aren't looking there. And a recent study came out that out of the Fortune 500, all 500 of them actually made a statement about DEI. But currently, from a supply diversity side, only 2% could really point at what they're doing or what they've changed to say, hey, you know, we are doing something. So that means that 98% of people are doing something with DEI, but it just hasn't gotten there yet. And so I always like to just kind of take a time and say thank you for allowing us to kind of bring awareness to this, because I think that when awareness comes, we see change comes. And then for just a product, and that was kind of my last thoughts there, uh, definitely look at doing a financial plan. The person with a financial plan versus the person without a financial plan, person with one essentially ends their life with a net worth that's three times as large as the person without. That's actually from the Center of Financial Planning and Charles Schwab. All I have to say, find a person. If it's Bay Street, great, but find someone to do some type of financial plan because there's definitely ways to be maximizing your money. That's kind of my last thought there. Thank you. How about you, Will? I'll kind of go back to what I started with. I started Bay Street to advocate for diverse and emerging fund managers. What I didn't realize is that by doing that, I would come across people and organizations and individuals like you, Stacey, who also advocate for us, you know. And so that's been a a very positive experience for me because we wouldn't be where we are today without the firms and the clients that we have who said, hey, we see what you're doing and we want to participate in that. And we're going to give you the opportunity to perform and to fail. Right. There's lots of fund managers who fail and they go start another fund and, you know, they just go off into the sunset. And it's great to know that we are able to work with individuals who are looking to support us, not because it's a DEI effort, because they say, look, this is in my best interest. And it's icing on the cake that I'm able to work with the team that I enjoy, that I know that my money is in a place that's doing best for myself and my family. And there's no sort of tinge that something could be better for them. You know, we're a performance oriented team. We would never want someone to say, oh, we're doing this from some sort of charity standpoint or something like that. And we're leading that effort by example, saying, look at our performance, compare us against anyone that you want to. And what you'll find is there are very few firms that are performing as good as us and our diverse counterparts, you know, so it's a very transparent relationship. Numbers speak for themselves and we're willing to go up against the best that there are. So thanks again for the time. and We're looking forward to what comes in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you both for joining us today. For our listeners, if you are interested in finding out more about Bay Street Capital Holdings, you can go to their website, baystreetcapitalholdings.com. And if you need to reach out to me, I am Stacey Hegarty. I can be reached at Stacey, S-T-A-C-I, at envisionrise.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, diversity and inclusion should not be treated as a one-off initiative. And so with your help, we can get this message to more people. Subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference.
because it starts with you.